hear the music. <laughs> that must mean one thing, Zach. What is it? It's Freightonomics time. Freightonomics time, 2 o'clock every Wednesday. Can't miss it. When well, things get real. Oh, and there we are. Welcome, everybody, to this episode of Freightonomics on Wednesday. What day is it? Again, is it Wednesday? Are it's we? Wednesday. It's okay. Wednesday. We're in the right place, right time, right I know place. It, I know it's getting confusing in these uh, in these crazy times, but uh, yeah, this is the only way that I know what what day of the week it is. It, it's it's like that sometimes. I mean, <laughs> I think that's that's been a sentiment that I've heard from a lot of people, friends, and colleagues. It's like um, all the days are kind of just starting to mesh together, especially when you're living in like this this Corona world this, it's this just rona like, world that this rona in. world that we're living in <laughs> you don't know if it's monday you don't know if it's tuesday what what day is it? you don't you're you just lose all concept of time you just yeah. know you got work to do and I meetings think, to attend i think we're finding out it doesn't really matter <laughs> no no it's going to get done well we got a big show today so welcome to freightonomics everybody the the sh- the podcast where we combine freight and economics that's right. And discuss their impact on the world. And today we've got a pretty, a really good show. Yeah. Uh, we've got some special guests today coming up that we're going to dive into how the coronavirus is starting to really, you know, impact the supply chain. So we've got Mike McNamara, right. uh, former CEO of Flex, which was a supply chain management company. And he's also, been, he's gotten involved into, uh, you know, Clear AI. Again, artificial intelligence, how to improve the supply chain through artificial intelligence, and PCH International. So uh, all of these things are really supply chain-centric. So again, and they're around the globe. It's not necessarily everything that's happening domestically. As we've all talked about on this show numerous times, we are not just isolated to our specific niches, our specific industries, our specific you know, domestic environment in the United States. We are connected to this global environment. You know, a lot of the products we have are made in China, uh, as we've talked about ad nauseum. Yeah. <laughs> I know that's a that's a big secret, especially to, uh, you know, our colleague Mike Vincent, who said that no, everything is absolutely made in America, more specifically uh, Tennessee, uh, where <laughs> he lives. He does not understand that there is a huge world outside of his house right that actually impacts the way that he purchases TVs and and big giant piles of wood to build giant swing set out back for his uh for his family a swing set swing sets so he says so he says right. he he thinks it's all made and manufactured like down the road somewhere i'm not buying it no but. So, yeah, so we've got that to talk about we've also got some pretty i mean obviously economics right now is is kind of a big topic. Yeah, it's a big topic. <laughs> um, and and the thing is with a lot of the economic stuff right now is that uh, the data can't really keep up with the current events because it's happening at such a rapid clip. We're seeing things develop on a day-to-day, week-to-week basis. A lot of times we're looking at macroeconomic measures, their monthly releases. I mean, the biggest weekly release that we have is, of course, uh, weekly jobless claims, which has been very, very, um, I think newsworthy as of late, of course, over the last two <laughs> slightly. weeks. Slightly. <laughs> and very impactful. I mean, we were looking at um, uh, jobless claims of uh, the last two level, two weeks, looking at it's hitting at the, the 10 million mark near, near thereabouts. And so um, there's still a lot to go because um, we have weekly jobless claims coming out tomorrow. Um, so we could be looking at another record-breaking number, uh, potentially. I mean, I would I would assume that we're expecting another record-breaking number. Yeah. Or, or, I mean, where do you think that we're going to hit some sort of plateau? Do you think we're coming to that yet? Uh, I, I, don't, I don't think we're there yet. Nope. I mean, I think uh, <laughs> one of the other areas that I've, I'm, I'm really a little bit worried about is all of these claims coming in, these initial jobs claims coming in. And I think we mentioned this on a previous show was those things actually being processed and uh, the systems kind of being jammed up and overwhelmed. So yeah. that's going to be a, a definitely a big issue. Um, also, as always, I am keeping my eye on uh, the LinkedIn at all times um, to see if there are any comments or questions throughout the show. So be a participant. Yeah, come on in and uh, ask us questions as things go, especially as we're talking to uh, Mike McNamara. And also uh, JT Engstrom, our chief str- strategy officer here at Freightways is going to join the conversation as well. Now, JT, of course, has gotten loads of experience uh, manufacturing toys. I mean, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) You know, in the investment sector, in the uh, private equity sector, of course, he'll be joining the conversation with Mike here in a few minutes. Uh, Just to give a little bit of extra perspective to the conversation, you know, you're an an economist, 
Yes. I'm, a, I'm a trucking guy. Uh, you know, we need somebody from the financial sector to really give us uh, some perspective here, especially when talking to somebody uh, with the vast experience of somebody like like Mike McNamara. So right, right. Uh, we also are going to talk about how what, what's happening in the current freight market. Obviously, yeah. it is a extremely volatile time. We're seeing volumes drop dramatically. We're seeing capacity tighten then loosen. We're, we're not really sure what to make of it. How long is it going to last, et cetera? We'll talk about that. Uh, but first up, you know, Anthony, I think we need to. We need to get things going. Yeah. With, uh, let's call let's call Mike and JT and see what's going on. What's JT up to? I don't know what he's doing right now. I haven't now. heard let's, from him in a while. Let's call him real quick and see what he's what he's got going on. While I'm while I'm calling these guys, uh, let's see if uh, I don't think he gave me his right cell phone number. No, he gave he, you the right one. <laughs> yeah, just like him. It just sounds like him. Here we go. Ah, oh, technology. All right, so we're calling Mike, and then we'll call JT and conference him in real quick. But perfect. Hey, Mike. All right, hey Mike, how are you doing, man? This is Zach and Anthony. All right. All right, you. Fantastic. You can hear me, so I'm going to conference JT right in. Ah, these uh, these crazy times with the uh, all the remote activity. <laughs> I know. I know. We're getting used to it. Right. <laughs> All right, let's get JT in on this conversation. Excellent. Zach, good afternoon. Oh, hey, JT, how are you doing, man? Very well, thank you. The uh, toy manufacturing is off the charts. <laughs> I'm nice. a little bit, JT never picks up when I call. Oh, well, now he does. All you have to do is Jeez. suggest a, a podcast. So, right. Mike, JT, you guys on and ready to go? Yeah. You can hear me, right, Mike? All right, so let's kick things off. So, I, I, I mean, we entered the show and talked about how supply chains have really become, you know, a big factor in all of this. And obviously, you know, we talked before the show about, you know, some of the medical supplies, obvious impacts to that. And, and things have trouble flexing up and down. Now, not to make a pun on your former uh, job as Flex CEO, but what are some of the areas that supply chains are, you know, currently having trouble, you know, or might have trouble with this coronavirus outbreak that you've seen so far? I mean, you've had vast amount of experience in managing supply chains, helping improve them. What are some of the things that you think they're, uh, that are a little weak at this point? Hi. Um, first of all, thanks for uh, having me on your show. Um, we appreciate it. You know, supply chains are inherently complicated, and the one thing that we're starting to realize is that once we step on the accelerator here, that you start to realize what all the constraints by base, whether they're the underlying components that are in the assembly area, whether the assembly area capacity itself, uh, where these parts are actually coming from, how easy it is to get these parts through um, and export and those kind of things. So what this thing is doing is we're seeing a, um, a, a little bit of a visibility on the problem. I think they're inherently complex, and that unless they're properly profiled, and unless you can actually create and understand the interdependencies all the way through to the component supply base, that when you try to turn on the accelerator to ramp them, you don't know if it's going to going to ramp or not. I mean, it's really showing the underlying complexities of, of how supply chains really work. Yeah, that's uh... yeah, Mike. Thank you for that. Uh... For that introduction, this is JC. In your experience, which I know is vast, can you talk to us a little bit about how, when getting products to market, uh, the, the, the final assembly is, is obviously critical, but the components that go into those assemblies and the subcomponents within those can be sometimes the, the origination of the issue or the, or the capacity constraint with developing final products and how you're looking at mapping networks to understand where there may be uh, product shortages uh, as a result of subcomponents versus the actual final goods. Yeah, exactly. Um, and that's one of the true problems of not having complete um, visibility all over through multiple constituents in the supply chain. Unless you can actually map all the way through the assembly process the inventory near the final assembler and all the way back to the component supply, you don't really know if you have supply chain. You really don't know if you have any resiliency or security. 
And those underlying components, you know, let's take ventilators, a good example, because that's front center today. You might have 10 manufacturers doing ventilators. They may be willing to ramp their capacity in the final assembly factory. But if all 10 of those ventilator manufacturers are going all the way back to three component suppliers that may be buried in wherever, somewhere else in the supply chain in China, for example, the constraint actually becomes the component, not the final assembly capacity. And unless you can map that, unless you can see that there's, you know, there's these component suppliers that are actually feeding multiple final assembly factories, and unless you can map all the way back to that component supplier and understand those capacities and that resiliency of that component supplier, then you really don't know if your supply chain is secure. And this was really evident as well back in the Japan tsunami, where it ended up shutting down what um, many different assembly plants from many different manufacturers, but it was a result of only a few component suppliers in Japan. And everybody had their own back plans or um, some of their assembly factories, but nobody really had uh, understood that those underlying components actually fed multiple manufacturers. And it's why we think it's so important today. Um, you know, one of the people that I'm a, I'm a strategic advisor is, is Clear, um, Clear AI. And what they're trying to do is really create a supply throughout the world. And, and unless you and until you create a real graph of where those components are, um, where the assembly factories are, where the inventories are, you don't actually know if you have the security in your supply chain and you don't really know how you can accelerate it when you get in a period of crisis like we are in today. Yeah, that's very insightful. Thank you for that overview, Mike. If, if we were to expand on this a little bit and tie it directly to supply chain interruptions, whether it be due to weather events or to uh, country-specific events, regional-specific events, um, which might overlap, we talk a little bit about how the need for uh, both visibility into the impact of disruptions play into uh, the ability for, to fulfill demand for production capacity, one. Uh, two, how supply chains can hedge their risk to these disruptions through various elements of inventory stocking, while also understanding that stocking inventory can be, can be expensive. Uh, and then also knowing that during periods of disruption, while production footprints may be disrupted, so may also transportation capacity. And so there's a lot of different factors that play into this when you look at the global macro international supply chain as it pertains to fulfillment of specific product demands at the categorical level. Yeah, I'm, I'm really sorry to say this. We had a very difficult time uh, in those last comments, there's some echo on the line. Sorry, I can you just you know, give me the highlights real quickly again? Yeah, so what, what we just outlined was what we try to dissect the disruption impact of the global supply chain. How do we think about tethering through from final assembly through sub component inventory, perhaps to even a, uh, a level a bit deeper to understand where. Uh, capacity constraints actually inhibit uh, final production and assembly and provisioning the market and how supply chains can hedge out the risk through various factors, one of which I mentioned could be, you know, you know safety stocking of inventory. Yeah. You know, what you were mentioned is, you know, some of the ways of building in the additional supply chain resiliency. You know, so I think the different elements, you have your supply, you have final assembly supply, you have inventory in between those pieces, you have um, distribution inventory, and then, you know, there's different consumption models. But managing the whole system is what is really required of, like, a modern and visibility and transparency into each of those events. So it's not only the capacities of the factories, the locations of the factory, the capacities of the factory, the key component technologies and where they're built, the inventories between each of those, and 
where it's actually finally manufactured and the inventory in between that distribution channel and then how much is the distribution channel. So it's only the only way to do that is to map and map that entire system. And that's actually what Zima's trying to do today. I was actually at Zima headquarters two weeks ago for two days, right in the headquarters in Washington, D.C. And when they look to prioritize distribution of goods or need, they can't actually do it because they don't have the supply chain graph resilience. And as a result, they actually can't do a, a proper distribution of, of where the, of the most need because they don't have visibility all the way to the supply chain with multiple, multiple companies in that um, system, whether yeah. it's freight forwarder, with distributor, whether it's you know, the guy moving the inventory or the manufacturer of the component. Now and that, that's exactly what is really needed today. And I, I think this is, uh, you know, it's entirely fascinating to me. Uh, and, you know, 25 years of selection, years of CEO, understanding supply chain. And when I came out of that, I just said, wow, the things that I really need to spend time on is this whole concept of supply chain resiliency. And that's why I love the idea of, you know, getting affiliated with Clear, becoming a strategic advisor, because they're trying to map that. And at the same time, I've, I'm also a strategic advisor at PCH International, who's trying to, right now, for people map the supply base. Like, where are all the suppliers? Where are they located? What are the capacities? To literally map the entire supply chain system. And it's only when you can look at the industry as cumulative total and be able to get that data into one aggregated platform where you can then pull the insights and pull, you know, find the cohorts that you can only do with, you know, really managing data and using data science. It's only in managing those, those cohorts of data that you can actually get to the insights and be able to get the actions that you need to build precise supply chain resiliency. This is exactly what the medical industry needs right now. And, um, and, and it's what I've been working on at Flex, well, how do I think about, you know, adding value in the supply chain? Because at Flex, I, get, I got so many different in the industry that it's only through the visibility of all the data, of all the constituencies that you can actually get real, real outcomes. Now, that's, that, that's pretty fascinating right there. Is I mean, it, it, it sounds like what you're talking about is the fact that people simply take for granted all the stuff that happens upstream of the supply chain that is just going to show up at their at their facility, you know, whether they are a manufacturer, retailer, et cetera, and, and they don't necessarily understand, you know, all the upstream effects of what's happening, say, in China. You know, maybe they don't have full visibility into what their supply chain, you know, has going on inside of it. Maybe there's a... Pr- uh, you know, particular piece made in South Korea that gets shipped to China, that gets shipped to India, et cetera, so on and so forth, that they just don't have clear visibility into. So they don't understand the full risks of what's happening in each individual, in each sector of uh, their supply chain. Is that accurate, Mike? Yeah, it's really accurate. And think about, you know, the pharmaceutical industry now that's coming under a lot of pressure because they're fighting some of the component, um, components of the drug are actually only done in China. And people are saying, and, and people are just now um, bringing this data to light. They're now studying the supply chains because they're trying to hit the accelerator and they're trying to ramp those supply chains. They're finding it's very difficult. And they understand now risk associated with the supply, the component supply choices that they have. And it's a practical industry, great example of an industry absolutely needs a supply chain graph and analytics to really understand the cumulative effects of that industry. And it's only in understanding those cumulative effects that you're going to get the right, um, you know, the right data to be able to manage. And hopefully you should be able to find ways where the industry itself has benefits as a result of having this cumulative platform. So there's always a platform effect benefit of the members as everybody puts their data into uh, and building this graph and really understand. But these kind of, like, PPE, ventilators, um, drugs, I mean, these are great industries where it absolutely needs um, this, a coordinated effort to understand the risk of resiliency of the supply chain. And, that's, and it, even in those particular products, it's actually driving international security. So to me, it should be a really high priority of the world itself, um, particularly in the United States, who you know is well advanced in many of these techniques. Um, 
and they have a very dispersed supply chain and very distributed supply chain. So this is what kind of the tech world is. It's like what I've been working on and is a step of modernizing supply chain and for the beta. Yeah, Mike, I think you know, I have one more that comes to mind, and that is uh, how would you categorize the current state of, of visibility into these supply chain uh, links and how material the impact of disruptions can be on them. Yeah, I think there's more and more visibility. But once you get cross industry and cross um, companies, it gets to be very complicated. Um, people are protective of their data. Um, so you'll get more and more visibility and transparency within the trucking industry or within you know, a distribution system that's bringing products from Asia into the United States. So you get continually more visibility as a result of the tools and techniques of the world. But if you don't extend it all the way to where's the supply base located that you're actually those parts in, that tends to be a different supplier, a different company, um, a different set of IT tools, and it gets complicated. So it's really hard to advance that agenda when you're moving across industries and across companies. It's only in the being able to aggregate that data that actually gets to the end of, in the end objective. So I think it's getting better, and um, a lot of companies are making a lot of progress, getting more visibility. But nobody's really got end-to-end -end visibility that is reliable and uh, really built to build a really secure blockchain and understand the supply chain so it can take the make the choices you need to to make that supply chain more resilient, either through different suppliers or better suppliers, more suppliers, or, you know, have them located geographically in a better way. That's very helpful. Thank you. Yeah, no, that's that's really good stuff, guys. So, uh, you know, Mike, you, you, you're a strategic advisor for uh, Clear AI, which is artificial, uh, clear artificial intelligence, which is, uh, you know, really you know, driving a lot of these initiatives towards developing visibility into supply chains. Uh, you know, give us a give us a quick plug on what you guys are uh, what you guys are working on right now, especially as you know, supply chain visibility becomes increasingly important. You know, in these times where we've got a, a crazy virus running rampant throughout the world right now, what what are you guys really seeing right now or spearheading that's going to help with that in the future? Big initiative that we're driving right now is within the supply chain itself. We're trying to profile all the or aggregate the data. Um, uh, you know, now to, to actually make a difference. So the more we can get partners on board to share that data, uh, where they can get the benefits of a platform effect, that's something that um, Clear is working on directly. So Clear has a has a a dedicated um, initiative around the, the medical. And, um, you know, right now working with the um, NHS to uh, actually profile them. So that's, you know, a major entree into the supply chain is, is working with them. Uh, but also talking to many other agencies at the moment to try to profile that data and also other, you know, manufacturers and distributors to be able to bring that data on board. So, I mean, if I was a one thing we could do is, you know, what we could um, make available to everybody the information that, so we need to get this supply chain profile. We, you know, that maintain our national security and, or each country maintains national security. We're going to have to profile the supply chain. They're going to have to create a graph of the supply chain in order to um, ensure the resiliency and the security. So this is a message we need to get out. Um, people are starting to see it. And, uh, you know, they're leading right now in terms of trying to profile that data for the medical industry. Oh, that's, yeah, that, that's incredible. So basically, we're, you're trying to aggregate as much information, get as many partners on board so everybody can, you know, be more reactive, uh, obviously make a quicker, uh, you know, impact into what's going on and react to what's going on in the environment around them. So that's, that's really good stuff. Well, thank you, uh, Mike, for joining us so much. And JT, as always. Thank you. You guys have a yeah. Have, thank you, guys. Yeah, you guys have a have a wonderful rest of your two Wednesday, Thursday, whatever it is, and uh, we'll talk to you guys later. Thanks again. Thanks, right. mm -hmm. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Yep. Riveting. 
riveting exactly. stuff, Anthony. That's the only way I can explain it. Now, yeah. you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell a quick story, oh, uh, you know, as I, as I regale oh, uh, the audience here with, uh, you know, I used to think that, you know, you know much like my, you know, I'm, I made fun of my, my friend Mike Vincent earlier about thinking that everything just came from his backyard. But I was no different back in the day, Anthony. Yeah. Uh, I, didn't, I didn't think about, you know, different aspects of how does this freight get to where it is? What's interacting with it? How does that impact me? I, it would have made me a, a thousand percent better at my job if I had just thought about what was going on more than 10 miles down the road from me. Uh, and, and I think that's, that's really the lesson here and that's what Mike uh, and his team are working on right now is how do you become more aware of your surroundings you know we're, we're sitting on a you know the third rock from the sun if we didn't know that the universe was interacting around us we would not be as effective as we are today right. uh, and that's that's really what he's talking about in terms of supply chain management so I think we're becoming a little bit more exposed to our ignorance of the supply chain yeah. uh, and what that actually means I mean for me before I came to Freightways. I really just thought of supply chain like a, you know, some 201 class yeah. in university and at you know university, and I, I was just like, oh, that's just some jargony term. Well, no, that's mm-hmm. that's actually a big long string of events that impacts every single person along the way. And depending, it doesn't matter who you are. Uh, you know, you could be a, a shipper, carrier, uh, manufacturer, call it what you want uh, in terms of language, but every single piece of that has a downstream or upstream impact on what you do. I mean, yeah. retailers sell the products. They, perf- they put that, the, your product out there into the world, into the environment, allow you and me to go in and see the product quickly, creating demand, interest, et cetera. And that, but the people that make it further upstream, you know, maybe they're in Taiwan, you know, if they don't produce anything, then you don't get you don't get your, uh, you know, your swatch watch that you got in 1983. <laughs> right. Uh, <laughs> So yeah, I think that was uh, that was pretty important stuff, especially to talk about right now when we're seeing various aspects of the supply chain really hit in like at different points along the line. Yeah, you know we yeah. we watched China have you know basically shut down right around Chinese New Year. We were like, oh, we're gonna be fine. We're gonna be fine. Mm-hmm. Oh wait, maybe not. Now mm-hmm. the demand side of things has been cut off because we're all sitting in our houses, uh, you know, watching Zoom and, and, and crazy podcasts at two o'clock on a Wednesday afternoon. Right. Right. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I mean, I, I definitely agree with that when we're talking about um, looking at uh, the supply chain as a whole, because it's, it's so complex and mm-hmm. it's not just one. It's not just you're not just doing addition and subtraction here. It's not like you can just put up a plant and effect and expect to fix all problems. You have other variables, other aspects to kind of really target, you know, especially when we're looking at uh, factories converting uh, efforts to produce things in the medical field. It's not just them putting those things in place. It's also about sourcing the material. Then mm-hmm. how long does that ma- long does it take that material to get to that, that destination of that factory? And then it's so many other aspects of just like one or two different variables to it. And so looking at the entire supply chain, as you mentioned, stuff that Mike McNamara is looking at is, is it's a lot, it's complex and and, there's a lot to it. And we as Americans, I think kind of take that for granted. Uh, you know, I know I did, uh, you know, you don't think about all the different components and going into your Apple phone, (laughs) your, your iPhone or whatever it is. And, and, you know, different parts of that are manufactured through in different parts of the world. Well, they all have to come together at some point in time. And if one, you know, uh, country has, they're peaking their coronavirus outbreak, you know, they're shut down, even though everybody else is doing okay. And I think this is a microcosm of what's going to happen here in the next, you know, seven, eight months. We're going to see countries having different peaks, different influences from the uh, from the coronavirus, COVID nineteen, whatever you want to call it, moving forward. So, right. let's uh, let's transition and talk about you know something that's you know a big concern here moving forward is the small businesses in the United States. Now, you, we talked about this in the past, yeah, and small businesses, especially uh, you carriers out there. Uh, 93% of you classify as a small business. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so 93% of the carriers out there uh, are in a small business, whether you like it or not. And, you know, the government has, you know, hopefully provided you with some form of flotation device as we wade these rough waters uh, moving forward. What are we, uh, what are we looking at here in the near term? I mean, we just had the stimulus package, but 
Yeah, and so I, I think one that was one of the areas that we were looking at um, closely before the when as the stimulus package was being proposed, um, what it would mean for the United States and what it would mean for us financially, and of course for um, those individuals that might be furloughed and so or completely laid off or fired. Right. Um, so when we're looking at that. Our initial thoughts were, and I remember, it was like, okay, of, of course, it's, it's, it's nice if these big businesses get it because, you know, they are a big part of the GDP, but they're not the big part of actual employee, employed numbers. So when we're looking at small businesses, they're going to employ the mass the mass amount of Americans. And so right. um, that's going to be the, the target. We need to find a way to get money into those Americans' home, uh, uh, hands so they could actually pay those bills and and uh, afford to pay their rent and all these other things, especially... Be- because the big businesses are nothing if people aren't buying their goods. Exactly. And that's who employs the people that are buying their goods. Small businesses. <laughs> there we go. And and that's been really jammed up as of late, um, seeing that uh, the most recent stimulus package hasn't really... Um, been as effective um, uh, as anticipated or or really uh, kind of what they what was intended for small businesses so I, I know there's another uh, potential um, stimulus and the works potentially of floating around the number of 250 billion for small businesses specifically um, directly at uh, being able to offer that those payments to keep uh, employees employed um, now, where do they where do they need to target? What did they miss with this first stimulus that they need to address in the next one potentially? So I think it was I think the target was missed on um, being able to provide those payment programs for uh, small businesses. Um, so somehow that was did not go as intended, <laughs> and so I think that's what the, the, this whole two hundred fifty billion uh, potential rollout is looking at hitting and targeting specifically. Um, and that's really going to be critical. And, and because these are individuals, many of them are going week to week to week. Yep. And we're already in, what, uh, week three, four, going on five now, um, of potential people that have already been impacted by layoffs, of course, region by region. It's going to vary. But um, when we're looking at those who are going to need this kind of stimulus the most, we're looking at in the Amer- those Americans that are are um, working in those uh, service, those consumer-facing roles. We're looking at retail. We're looking at hospitality, leisure, uh, restaurants, things like that. People that aren't working right now. People that aren't (laughs) working right now. They can't get their stuff. So, yeah, and the jobless claims obviously going to continue to rise. We talked about that earlier in the show. What do you you anticipate, uh, you know, this is going to look like here in the next couple of weeks or so? Do you think we're going to see another, I mean, obviously you think we're going to see another record week? I think I think potentially we could see maybe up to seven million. I mean, wow. no sky's the limit at this point. I mean, um, we would want to at least start to hope to see some kind of uh, tick down, especially after that whole stimulus package was was uh, rolled out. Um, of course, that's going to take time to kind of really hit everything. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, I mean, I. Hopefully, it's not another record-breaking week. Hopefully, it's still under that six million number, which is crazy to think. Um, but, but yeah, we could be looking at something around seven million. That's that's. Do we have a breakdown on who? Do we have a breakdown on who specifically is is in that em- unemployment number? Do we have any real detailed statistics on that just yet, or are we, you know, are we just assuming that lar- large part of it is obviously like the restaurant, mm-hmm. you know, as you said, the service industry. Uh, type employers. Now we have seen some industries have a lot of hiring, you know, the restaurant or not the restaurant, but the grocery uh, sector seems to be on a hiring spree. Amazon is yeah. is doing fine. Um, you know, carriers of course have had kind of, a, depending on the sector that they're involved in, they've had kind of a, a solid March, right? which actually might show up in the first quarter numbers to an extent. I think we're going to see some real, uh, divergent numbers in the first quarter in terms of those who have had good month or good quarters and bad quarters, especially on the transportation side of things. The, uh, you know, some carriers who have a lot of consumer products, et cetera, involved some of the food warehouses and, and all that stuff have probably had a really good quarter, yeah. which is going to be deceptive yeah. going into Q2, which I think everybody is going to eventually feel, uh, you know, the full brunt of the, the coronavirus uh, impact here in Q2. But you know, we've watched volumes really fall here in the last 
a couple of weeks. It's probably been a week and a half now that we've come off peak around March 23rd, according to our outbound tender volume index here at Freightways that we track. And it's come down really fast. Andrew Cox wrote a really good uh, piece about the disproportionate decline (laughs) versus the rise. We had, I mean, as, as sharp as that increase in volumes was, uh, it, it's still not as quick as the decline in volumes. Right. And, you know, it's only taken a matter of days. You know, I, was, I, I talked about it the other day with, on the coronavirus special here, uh, you know, that we do on Tuesdays and Thursdays at Freightways HQ. You know, I lost a bet with Craig. Yeah. You know, I, well, I haven't officially lost it yet, but all signs point to me losing it. Our outbound tender volume index, of course, has a base value of about 10,000. Yeah. Which started March 1st, 2018. And... Uh, We generally see things hover between about 9,500 in the slow season to about 10,500, 6,700 in in the, you know, the busy active times. So those would be the times around June when volumes are really peaking, uh, around Christmas, et cetera. We have had some some bumps up around Labor Day and, and things like that. Again, we have not had a real regular pattern of freight. As, as seasonal as we believe that the freight market is, uh, it does have quite a bit of volatility in it uh, outside, outside of seasonality over the last two years or so. We, I think we really, uh, you know, I myself, and speaking from experience, got spoiled with a very consistent pattern yeah. in the freight market. You yeah. know, and what I mean by that is that we had volumes kind of increase in March and then, you know, go into June and we had a good month or so. And then August, things are still pretty good. And then around November, Christmas, supply would get a little tight. And so we'd see some spot market increases. Rents repeat for about seven years or so from about 2010, 2016. We had a relatively stable pattern. The volumes kind of dropped off in 2016, et cetera. But since that time, We've had 2017, which started off really slow, mm-hmm. then start, kicked off that whole 2018 thing because of the hurricanes and the booming economy, et cetera. You know, and then 2019, super soft, you know, oversupplied market, et cetera. You know, and then we were thinking, oh, man, I, just a month, ago, or a month and a half ago, we were thinking, oh, man, things are super normal here. Yeah. February, flat, and now we've got this COVID-19 outbreak to mm-hmm. just wreck uh what we think about what's going to happen over the rest of the year yeah um so i don't i don't know what to think about what's what's upcoming but we have seen some weird anomalies and uh you know the the way that we're seeing them manifest is not necessarily uh you know the ways that you would think they would i myself you know you probably can speak to this too didn't see the full brunt of the coronavirus impact on the economy hence the freight market, et cetera. Did you have any, I mean, we don't really have a game plan for this, what's going on right now, do we? Um, So from an econ standpoint, and definitely looking at uh, uh, policies being put in place, it's it's so beyond those events that, so you mentioned like the hurricanes, like those things are just like very localized. We can target it. We can just isolate that, that incident, pour all the resources in there, and, and, you know, get it ramped back up as soon as, as fast as possible and kind of really get things as back to normal as possible within, you know, a month or two's time. Of course, the relief effort is going to take a little bit longer after that, but really kind of getting back to baseline rather quickly. When we're looking at things like this, it's difficult because those regional differences. And then on top of that, it's like it's not a one size fits all, but it could be. But if you, you got to weigh that out, right, you have to weigh out what's worth shutting down completely and what's an overreaction and then is it an overreaction if it's you know for the betterment of slowing the spread and so there's all these different components that have to kind of culminate and and move together and so we're looking at that that's what's really making this so difficult is that uh the regional variances and then yeah like new york for instance is having a huge outbreak right now whereas we're in chattanooga tennessee with 83 cases. Yeah. You know, that's, it, it's such a vast array of discrepancy. Uh, I, I, I can't put into words what a, you know, how imbalanced that is. And that's, you know, but we're, we're basically, you know, quarantining at home. I mean, most right. of us, not us specifically, but we're, you know, everybody is basically, you know, sheltering at home here just like they are in New York. Right. Uh, ours is a little bit more effective, obviously, due to the fact that 
we can we are naturally more socially distant right, right. <laughs> you know not inside of a city where you have 300 square foot lofts stacked on top of each other in apartment buildings people are living you know on top of each other literally uh, in that environment so it's going to be really hard to contain anything that happens up there which again the majority of the population though lives in those areas right but the ge- geographically speaking we're actually doing i guess i mean relatively well down here in terms of the spread of the virus containment etc i know the hospitals down here have you know actually furloughed people but then sent those people up to new york right. to actually readjust and this is this is a good uh, example of supply chain redistribution uh, if you do have resources that you can you know use in another way and source them at least temporarily to another specific you know you know, piece that could help with the situation. That's, that's probably ideal and especially ideal to your bottom line there in the, uh, in Q2, Q3 as, as we see coming up now, you know, I think we've seen some changes in inventory levels, even though that China was effectively shut down for a month. Is that accurate? Yeah. Um, especially this is positive news. Um, yeah, positive (laughs) news ish. I mean, we've, we've definitely seen, I think China come back online with more activity. We've seen, um, even stories, uh, of course, on different headlines. You can take some of them with a grain of salt, of course, but um, seeing that uh, the spread is kind of almost slowed completely in China and Wuhan's back and open and running, right. all this other good stuff. So um, seeing that uh, that import activity starting to ramp back up, I think, of course, is giving people hope that, okay, there's an insight if we can look at ground zero and they're improving, there's hope for other parts of the world as well. Um, but when we're looking at uh, the, the significant pull forward in uh, the first half of March or mid-March, really, um, because March was incredibly different from February. But even within March, it was like two different months. Understatement of the podcast. It's huge. You win. <laughs> huge. And so it's like even within March is like the first half of March, mid-March, and then the end of March. And for many, it was the longest month ever right. on record. But it was just like there's so many different parts to it. And so when we look at that that ramp up, that pull forward, so much of that panic buying coming in, um, that really kind of it, it, it threw supply chains into a frenzy. and so. But yet we see inventory levels increase. In, inventory levels are increased. So I think now it's like almost a reaction of and yeah. that anticipation of all that pull forward. But now that that pull forward's happened, individuals have are unfortunately being laid off, let go for right. a load. Unemployment rates are spiking. Um, that's going to limit discretionary spending. That's going to limit the amount of panic buying. And then on top of that, panic's going to subside after you've gotten your um, 18th pack of family size or edition toilet paper. It's like you, you're running out of, you know, you're 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 set. You're you're good to go, <laughs> and so I think as we see fewer and fewer, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, goods being sh- hauled straight from um, port to those uh, final destinations. Potentially, we're going to see a lot more ramping up and increasing in uh, um, warehouses, and that's definitely something we've seen in the logistics managers index. Yeah, from the good folks over at uh, I think Name Colorado them. State, Keep Arizona going. State. <laughs> Uh, University of Reno, Nevada, Rutgers, um, I think I might be forgetting one, um, Rochester Institute Rochester. of Techni- yeah. Technology. <laughs> um, uh, uh, shout out to Zach and, and Dale Rogers, of course. Where I think we're going to try to get them on here. Yes, um, we need shortly. to, especially Zach. He's got a great name. Yeah, yeah. He spells it <laughs> Z-A-C. That's fine. He's cool. Yeah, I'm into that. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I think when we're looking at inventory levels, they're growing again. Um, after there was a contraction in February. So when we're looking at that, it just kind of speaks to the vast difference between February, early March, mid-March, late March, to now April, where it's a complete different environment uh, now that we're in April compared to just the end of March. And we're yeah. seeing volumes starting to come down and, and that entire environment happening. I'm, I'm actually shocked that we're seeing inventory levels increase. I mean, again, I know that we're really biased towards what we've seen with the consumer products and the food warehouses, et cetera. Food warehouses obviously have a lot higher turnover rate than that of traditional retail or, or any other kind of, you know, manufacturing inventory. They try to keep that as slim as possible in those areas. But, you know, I, I am, it does kind of, I think, give me hope 
for a quicker recovery in terms of having inventory levels up. I don't know what specific inventory levels we're talking about. Right. I love my detail uh, on that. But at the same time, we, you know, we're about to enter a month uh, or a period of time where trucking volumes are going to be significantly depressed. And I don't know what that looks like at this point in time. I think you know, some of the things that I've worked with here over the last little bit have us bottoming out around a level 30% lower year over year, which is way lower than, you know, what we experienced last year. So right. last May, we uh, experienced a pretty strong bottoming uh, in the market right after, you know, the trade war situation escalated uh, around May 10th, and we dropped to about a 5% lower level. So a 30% lower level of uh, freight volume would be, you know, catastrophic in yeah. my mind. Like that, that would mean that, you know, carriers really need to tighten their belts a lot more than they did. I mean, they, they really didn't have the, the bandwidth to do that in, you know, depending on their exposure to different industries, obviously. But, you know, some of the carriers that had a lot of Procter & Gamble or, you know, Kimberly Clark or anything that's, you know, upstream of all these medical supplies, et cetera, uh, that are moving with any volume in the United States, uh, they obviously had really good marches. But then again, that's going to be followed by unless again you're hauling uh, food and medical supplies yeah. re specifically related to the the COVID outbreak, uh, you're really going to have to buckle down here in the next couple of months. And you know, just like Mike was talking about, you know, earlier in the show, supply chains are dramatically exposed to this fluctuation in volume activity. Uh, supplies cannot simply, you know, if if you have if you're a carrier, you're, you have 30 trucks. You know, say 10% of your business, you know, operates with consumer goods. The other 90% are basically, you know, either going to have to be redistributed to those consumer products, growing the, the business on that scale, and then you're going to have some sort of leftover amount that you don't have a lot to do with. Yeah. Uh, the problem is, is that those consumer goods now, now that you've got that part figured out and you say, okay, I've got 20 of you that can now work on the, you know, the toilet paper carrying. Yeah. Now, everybody's got their toilet paper, but also all of the toilet papers going into the major metro areas, into the major distribution centers for toilet paper, and there's no manufacturing coming out. Yeah. So now you've got a deadhead out of those markets uh, with nothing, and, right. but you don't have, you cannot charge like too little. Like you're literally going to have to bottom your rates. Now we're not, it, it, it's, it's going to be, a double-edged sword here because you're probably going to see a lot of capacity come offline here in the next two months. Yeah, it's happening all over the country in various industries. We're all, we're even seeing it in the health industry where people are being furloughed, laid off, you know, redistributed where they can uh, as people are shut down. But to get all of that back online, <laughs> you know, with any you know quickness is going to be a challenge for anybody, especially yeah. in the carrier side. I mean, you we we were talking about it on the show earlier in the way that you cannot simply just flip a switch and everything's back to where it was. Right. These are going to be intermittent fluctuations uh, in both supply and demand. And we're seeing that actually exhibited in both the air and maritime sectors right now already. Yeah. So the air cargo, international air cargo, international uh, shippers, mm -hmm. and maritime uh, carriers, I should say, the, the container ships that are coming from China, Europe, et cetera. Uh, their rates are actually going up right now. Why do you think that is? I think is, is capacity starting to tighten. And also, when we look at air, there's less uh, pedestrian flights. Supply-side contraction. <laughs> Something that the trucking industry has no, no experience with whatsoever outside of a forcible situation. Yeah. So air passengers, yeah. absolutely a forcible situation. That is, they were shut down. They can't travel anymore. Air cargo rates start spiking to above seasonal highs in March. Yeah. And we're still watching those uh, continue to increase, especially on the China to North America as medical equipment. Again, air cargo is going to be your higher value goods, pharmaceuticals, medical equipment, electronics, not as much electronic shipping right now. Mm -hmm. uh, but high demand, they're going to need that as fast as possible because we're talking about human lives here. So they need all of those ventilators, all of those pharmaceuticals coming in as fast as possible. They've got FEMA money backing them. You know, that's going to create a big upstream impact on that supply chain as they try to produce enough to uh, meet demand. But then 
What's going to happen? Is there going to be oversupply? I mean, over... Eventually... Too much, too much capacity? I know it doesn't feel like it, but eventually we One will... One going to happen? We will, we will be through this. Yeah? And the pendulum's going to swing. And we're going to have... We're probably going to have a lot of pharmaceuticals that we don't need. We're probably going to have a lot of ventilators sitting around. Those beds we were using, uh, you know, to help treat these patients, they're not going to be needed as much. We're going to have to change. Yeah. And things are going to have to go back the way they were. So... That's what I'm talking about when I'm talking about supply chain volatility is the fact that every piece of the puzzle is going to have some sort of wave mm -hmm. that they got to ride. And the Maritime and Air Cargo guys, they're going to have to ride it too. Yeah. Uh, Maritime has a little bit more control uh, than the Air Cargo side of things, however. Uh, you know, talking to Henry Byers, obviously one of our market experts here. Brilliant shout man. out to Henry. Uh, you, you know, it is... It's a crazy environment to operate on the international shipping lanes, especially when you're talking about them canceling sailings. I mean, it doesn't necessarily translate. Higher rates does not necessarily translate to more profit right. in this specific uh, environment. The air, you know, the airlines are not making a lot more money because they're charging, you know, 300% more. They're not. They're going to lose a lot of money. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but they have to charge that much more because the limited amount of capacity that they can only afford to operate is now in higher demand, but only in specific aspects. Right. So it's not just this big oversupply situation. There's, there's going to be a wave that they ride to. The rates are going to come back down. Uh, they're not, it's, it's just going to be a very tough environment to operate in uh, here over the next few months or so. And, you know, the carriers, they're going to go through a trough Yeah. probably for the next couple of months. I don't know if that 30% number that I threw out is accurate or not. I have, I have no way of knowing that. But the, the pace that we're operating on right now, things do appear, and here in the last two days, volumes do appear to be slowing their decline mm -hmm. uh, a little bit more yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, than, than I expected. So we may not hit that 30% number, but, eh, you know, as long as we're shut down as a country, that's only going to make that trough that much deeper potentially right. moving forward. Right. And, and I think one of the things you just hit on um, earlier was once it's all kind of comes to the other side of things, you can't just hit that, that switch and just like, okay, everything's fine now. You can come out business as usual, resume. You can't just, after hitting that pause button, just right. hit play and expect things to just kind of operate as it was, like nothing ever happened. And so I, th I think that, that kind of harkens back to one of the conversations we had at, maybe last week or the, even the week before, we're talking about the stimulus packages, what kind of incentives? Because there's going to be need, need to be some kind of incentive to pull um, consumers out of their shells, to pull businesses out, to, uh, to incentivize small business owners or former small, small business owners that were discouraged because they had to shut their doors. They don't want to take on any kind of liability like that. They just had to let go of their, all these people. They're, they're feeling awful about it last thing they want to do is maybe just, hey, let's have another go at it, you know? And so there's going to be some incentive for those small business owners, um, for, for uh, companies to ramp up, uh, have the, give them a reason to ramp up hiring, give them a reason to invest in, in capital goods again. And so that's going to be another aspect, I think, another variable. And we're looking at the, the other side of this thing of not just you can't flip the switch, but how can we incentivize individuals um, and, and really make them feel supported? Like, okay, it's all, it's all right to resume uh, business as usual here. So uh, what, is, what is the impact of all this? You know, normally the economy thrives on activity. You have yeah. to transition that money. Uh, the movement of money, the flow of funds is really what drives an eco economic growth. Mm -hmm. what, what do you think that, you know, we really need to focus on here in the next little bit? What do you think they're doing right if they are doing something right with the stimulus packages? What do, what do you think those things are that will help those small businesses, will keep people employed, because I th in my opinion, keeping people employed as high of a rate as possible is crucial to the recovery aspect of this. What yeah. do you think they're doing right or wrong or et cetera? Uh, I mean, it's all going to come down to, so the intentions are, are one thing, and then whether or not it pans out is, is another. Right. But I think the, the good thing is that the emphasis being on essential. And so looking at the the focus on uh, the medical equipment and really focusing on these hotbed areas. Um, I think that's what's really being done right. The other thing that I think that was being done right are with the great intentions of 
uh, the unemployment uh, package was to increase uh, the total for the weekly unemployment dollar amount and then extend the life of how long someone could be on those ter- certain programs. Whether or not it was effective, we're seeing headlines on the small business side that not so much, but but at least for those that were unemployed, um, being able to see that, okay, there is an additional fund um, set aside to assist these workers that were on a week-to-week plan um, a little bit more to help them out uh, on their day-to-day activities and just being at least able to pay bills. And so I think that's going to be um, one of the areas that, that has been really done well. And I think moving forward, I, I mean, potentially looking at how we can con- expect certain individuals that are on some of these un- uh, unemployment plans to pay their rent because some of them have are going to be behind on rent. Is there going to be some kind of rent forgiveness program? I mean, but, but doesn't that doesn't that hurt the people upstream of that, the oh, landlords, et cetera? Definitely. I mean, because then yeah. you can't just simply say, okay, sorry guys, you're down here at the low oh, end of the bottom, big time. You know, the especially bottom. retail space. Um, we're looking at uh, businesses that were deemed non-essential. Yeah. Uh, those some of those companies or businesses are going to have to shut their doors, but they're still going to be responsible for those rent that's that's due for that area, that space, and so. Um, that's going to be a hard hit for many retailers and, and, and manufacturers that were renting that are considered non-essential. And so that's going to definitely be a, a hard pill um, for many individuals and whether or not that uh, there can be some, some kind of assistance. But on the retail side, no jumping around from retail to consumer, but on the retail side, um, there a lot of them were on their last leg before all of this. I yeah. mean, you saw bankruptcies um, for some of the larger brick and mortar stores already. Um even though e-commerce is ramping up for many of them, it's not going to be enough to really fill the gap here. Well, one thing's for sure, though, to you know make this more of a positive spin is that out of every recession, every volatile period of time, there's always something or someone that comes out of this, you know, sparkling. Uh, there's always a winner, uh, you know, in, in these environments. You know, we had a huge amount of growth coming out of the 2009 recession, uh, especially on the small, you know, the venture capital side. Like that was really what spurred a lot of the economic growth uh, over the next several years. You had a lot more tech involved. People became more efficient. Uh, one of the things these these moments do is clear out inefficiencies. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that we will see a lot of that, uh, you know, coming up here in the next couple of months. We will be obviously tracking where that happens. Right. We're a little too early in the process. Right now, we're still in that. It still hurts. You know, yeah. we're still bleeding right now. Just for the moment, looks like things are getting a little bit better. Uh, but we will come out of it more than likely probably a little bit better than we were going into it. And I think that the, uh, look you know, at that optimism, look, look at me, I have to take over for you. Look at that optimism. I have to, I have nice. to be the one, uh, this week. That sentiment. So, yeah, but, uh, you know, moving forward, we're obviously going to be tracking a lot of these things. This is going to be an extremely interesting time to watch here over the next month or so, uh, just to see what kind of, you know, what is it, do, what is it doing to supply chains, trucking volumes, capacity, et cetera. I mean, the, coming out on the backside of this capacity stands to really kind of tighten up a lot, uh, you know, looking into August and, you know, September, October and, and fourth quarter, et cetera. Yeah. So, um, and on that note, Anthony, I think, you know, I think we can at least agree on one thing through all this, and that, that is that spicy food is some of the best thing that you can do because it increases the amount of dopamine activity in the brain, therefore increasing the amount of endorphins uh, and all the other positive chemicals leading you to be a better human and better able to survive these rough times. And I'm so glad that you agree with me on all that. Zach, we just had a lovely conversation, a great podcast. You're going to end it on that? I'm just telling you right now. Spicy I mean, food is awful. Oh. It's but like you, torture. Why ex- would you do... Just Can you end the show? Except Jeez. you just have... Jeez. You have so much... <laughs> I mean, I... I, I I just stated facts based on science, and then you had... It's like had torture. What? what did you have? It's torture. <laughs> Why? You got to measure. If you have a food that can be measured on a scale of pain, what, the Scoville or whatever, for the hotness of peppers, there's no other, like, fl- there's not, like, a sour scale that I know of. There's not a sweet scale I know of. Yeah. There's a spicy... You know what that pain brings you? Pleasure. You're sick. Pleasure, and that's kind of my analogy that I'm using, uh, you know, to be optimistic. Is that through this strife and hard time, we're going to come out better, 
and It'd more be best if we have foregone it all together. <laughs> uh, yeah, maybe so. <laughs> maybe Jeez. it's not the perfect analogy. <laughs> all right. Well, that'll wrap things up for this week's Freightonomics. I think. <laughs> yeah, I think so. All right. Yeah. Spicy foods. Eh? Spicy foods. Yeah. Okay. The yeah. positive is like I can maybe be a thermogenic. Listen, I'm talking about emotional stability. You don't need it. I. I love emotional stability. Nah, you don't need it. You're good to go. Just stay happy. Pain equals pleasure. Oh, <laughs>